Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show was brought to you by our friends over at run for prs Coaching. run for prs helps runners of all abilities discover their inner strength and potential. They understand how hard it can be to juggle training with family, career, and other pursuits, and they're excited to help support you in your athletic journey and help push you to some new heights. Run for PRs coaches work with athletes from all over the world through their online coaching platform that allows them to schedule, review your runs, communicate feedback, and hold you accountable. All their coaches are Boston qualifiers with years of coaching experience, and you can learn more at runforprs.co. That's run, the number four, prs.co, and you can check them out on Instagram at runforprs. And when you go online, go to their website, and you fill out their questionnaire, which doesn't hold you to anything, make sure that you mention the Rambling Runner podcast where you say how you found out about the website. So today's show is with Sarah Hendershot. Now this is a departure from a uh, a typical guest that we have. So Sarah is an absolutely incredible athlete. So she is an Olympic rower. So as I said, not the typical guest for a running podcast, but she recently ran the New York City Marathon. It was her first marathon and I couldn't wait to talk to her because I have found that people who have achieved excellence in other athletic pursuits or basically any pursuit have this kind of the necessary characteristics and qualifications to understand what it's like to you know, have the mental fortitude, the inner strength, and the focus and desire that we all need in whatever we're trying to do. So I was really excited to talk to her, really dive into her, her rowing background. And then tease out the things that worked for her, excuse me, <coughs> to tease out the things that worked for her in that pursuit and how it then affected her from a running perspective. In addition, at the end of the show, we talk a lot about supplements. So now she works for Momentus, which is a, uh, a supplementation company. They're doing really good things. They're not a sponsor of the show, but they are doing some good things. That's for sure. And I was excited to talk to her because her and I came from the exact same point. Um, in terms of how we approach supplements. She didn't take supplements when she was rowing at the highest level for certain reasons. And even I have really stayed away from supplements as well. So we take a, a kind of a dive into that. We talk about you know our fears with supplementation, how it can help, you know, why it's important, if it is important for certain things. And I know a lot of you, you know, think about how you can supplement not just you know for athletic um, success, but also to kind of add to your diet if you feel like you're not getting the proper f- nutrition from your food. So we talk about all things. Now she works for a supplement company, but that doesn't you know as you'll hear, she's a pretty unbiased uh, person in this regard. It's very obvious uh, as you'll hear that she's not all uh, all rainbows when it comes to supplementation, and that she views it just like the word. It's a supplement too what you should be doing already with your food and nutrition, not in place of. So I can't wait to hear, uh, not to hear, I've already heard it. I can't wait to bring you this episode with Sarah Hendershot. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to be a guest on your show. Well, I'm excited to, to talk to you for so many reasons. But first of all, let me just say congratulations on the New York City Marathon. It happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, first marathon experience. First first thing is congratulations. And what were your thoughts? Like if, what was it, when you finished up, what were the first couple of things that were running through your mind? Yeah, ugh, it was so fun. It was such an amazing experience. I really did not know fully what to expect. And, you know, I had heard from a lot of friends and others that had run marathons or run them a lot, um, you know, some of their thoughts about New York in particular. But I guess when I finished the, or when I crossed the finish line, my immediate thought was, okay, when are we going to do another one? (laughs) But, uh, you know, four or five miles previous to that, in my head, it was, I'm never, ever doing another one of these again. (laughs) So I think kind of one of those typical, uh, you know, psychological ups and downs that you go through out the course of a marathon experience. 
Yeah, that's for sure. I've definitely been there. I know exactly what you mean. So what was the what was the biggest hurdle during the race that you had to overcome? Uh, I guess I would say it just felt like a dramatically different kind of toll on my body than I have ever experienced in any of my athletic feats um, in, in that pretty much everything else that I've done competitively has been something where the, the pain that you're you're dealing with is very much so uh like a burning sensation right so that's that's what a rowing 2k really feels like it's this terribly focused uh lactic kind of a feeling where your muscles just burn and you essentially have to get really good at figuring out how to manage that pain and breathe through it and continue to move well while that's happening to your body and in this case, it was so strange to me to feel like I am breathing totally fine. I can talk completely fine, but my body is slowly failing me and uh, crumbling as I'm getting closer and closer to the finish line here. And so it was just a matter of wrapping my head around a totally new kind of pain and figuring out how to push through that and keep those kind of crazy thoughts that start to build up under control. Yeah, because it must have been a very different feeling trying to get ready for that from a starting line perspective. Yeah, it was. And, and all the training that led up to it, too. Right. So, um, I mean, just the way that you I had to approach a regular training day felt felt so different. It, it wasn't a matter of, OK, I've got to show up and be super tough in this moment where you know, either I see a number in front of me that's starting to fade, right? Like I'm starting to become fatigued late in this training session. And I have to look at the, the number that's in front of me and make sure that I can stay on that number. It was more of, I need to make sure that I can finish this without somehow, you know, you know, having an injury tweak pop up or an area of my body really starting to be in pain. Right. So it just felt so different in the way that I had to, kind of figure out the the best paths towards slowly gaining fitness and resilience uh, to get to the start line of New York. Yeah, I can imagine. That's for sure. And then just once you're even there at the starting line, like I'm imagining you at the start um, of one of your rowing races, like being like so pumped up, right? Like getting like so jacked up for the start, you know, ready to take on the world where it's like you start a marathon, you like do everything you can to like have the exact opposite feeling. Like the last yeah. thing you want is to like get too excited. Cause then like, it could like, it can be fatiguing. You know, so I mean? you true. almost need to approach it like the exact opposite. Like just a long, no, just another long run. No big deal. Like I hope my first mile is my slowest. Like, yeah, <laughs> that is true. That was, that was something I had to definitely focus on at the start line of New York, but a little different than kind of what you just said there in terms of rowing. It was almost sitting at the starting line of my rowing races. I had to figure out how to sit in that middle ground between I am so jacked up and ready to destroy this piece. And I'm really calm and relaxed and totally like Zen in this moment. And you can go too far one way or the other and have it really dramatically impact your performance for the worst, where either you're so riled up because you can't wait to start that, you kind of blow all of your adrenaline within the first 250 meters or you're so calm and serene and low key that you actually don't have enough adrenaline to get you that extra little bit that you would help you to perform better through the first half of that race. So that in of itself, figuring out how to show up to the starting line with the right amount of energy was a skill that I had to practice over time. And I'm sure, you know, if I'm to do more marathons down the road, I'll start to figure out how to better that starting line process too. But this one was kind of a show up and see if I can manage it. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I can't wait to talk more about the race, but before we get there, I wanted to set the stage for all of that by diving into your athletic career, specifically your rowing career, because you know, this is, you have just an incredible story. You're you know, an Olympian uh, from the 2012 games and just reaching that level of success in any endeavor is, you know, it's like a modern miracle, right? There's so many people out there who are trying to achieve great things and you did, you did achieve a great thing. So let's go back in time. When did you start picking up rowing as a sport? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's funny that you kind of set that up that way. Cause I, cause I look at the, my whole career as a rower from start to finish as 
kind of a combination of, you know, really hard work and probably some, you know, athletic disposition that I was born with. And then a ton of luck along the way where things just lined up the way that they needed to at a certain time. And then the opportunities were there. And that's even the same with when I started rowing, because I moved to a new town with my family, uh, a new town in Connecticut, uh, as I was entering middle school. And I went to a public high school and was in a public school system my entire, you know, young life. And was so lucky that the town my parents chose to move to happened to have a rowing team at this public high school, which what was, in was Simsbury, uh, Simsbury, okay. Connecticut. Yeah. Of course. And so at the time, as I was entering high school, which was 2002, we were one of five public high schools in the entire state that had a rowing program. So totally lucky and random that I happened to stumble upon it because I think, you know, if they had chosen the next town over, I may have never found rowing. And really what, what happened was I had played so many different sports growing up and had found some success in a lot of them. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to play soccer in the fall and I really wanted to continue to swim in the winter, but I wasn't sure which one I wanted to choose for the spring. You know, if I wanted to run track and field, if I wanted to try to play lacrosse. But my parents actually were the ones that kind of pushed me to go explore the boathouse because they knew, you know, I had this huge aerobic base from so many years of swimming. And I was very tall at that point already as a freshman in high school. And they had started to hear some rumblings of potential athletic scholarships for women in rowing. And they were like, why don't you go check this out? I think you, you know, you might like this. Yeah, you might be good at it. What, like, go see what it's about. And pretty much from the first day that I went down to the boathouse, I fell in love with the sport because it was so different than anything else I had done up until that point. And it was super clear to me that the more work, work that I chose to put in, the better my result was going to be. And that really clear connection between time and work felt gratifying and exciting to me. Now, when I think about crew practice, rowing practice, I think about early, early mornings on the water. Is that what it was like for you? Actually, almost never. <laughs> and I think I somehow got away with not having to fully experience that. I, I mean, most people that you talk to, and even now, most of my teammates that I raced at the Olympics with had those experiences at some point, whether that was high school or college, but my high school program rode after practice, uh, after school. So, you know, we practiced something like three to 5 PM every day. And then my college experience was the same sort of thing. I went to Princeton and sorry if I'm jumping ahead here, but, um, they, they have a really unique set up for their athletes in that all classes are paused between 4.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. so that athletes don't miss out on the opportunity to take certain classes that would have otherwise be held during that time frame. So that's when all teams practice. So I never really had to do the 5 a.m. or the 4.30 a.m. wake up kind of thing. We would occasionally have doubles where we were rowing in the morning as well, but it just wasn't really the, our standard. And then once you get to the national team, there is definitely some early rows, but they're not so early that they're going to be detrimental to your sleep patterns or your recovery. So it, I never really had to, had to go down that road. Oh, good for you. I, yeah. when I, I was my first job out of college, I was coaching basketball at a school in Rhode Island and I was an early morning person for a long time. And they, they even like the day before the first practice for the crew team came up and they didn't have anyone. It was a club team, but they didn't have anyone advising them. Yeah. And just from an insurance perspective, uh, insurance perspective, they needed somebody on the water. Right. So, so the AD comes up to me and goes, listen, we need you to do this. We need you to go out there and be their coach. I'm like, I literally have no experience <laughs> in any capacity in any boat ever. He goes, we don't need you to do anything. Literally just be in a dinghy and you can have like an alternate, just drive you around on the water, just have a cup of coffee and just be out there. And that's all we need from you. <laughs> And I was like, all right, I guess, like, you know, they gave me like well, a couple hundred bucks and it was no big deal. But it was like, I got so much respect for those kids because this was you know, super, super early in the morning. Again, it was in New England, just like you. And, you know, super cold, really windy because this was on this was in the, in the Narragansett Bay. It wasn't yep. on a river. So the wind was just like flying out of Fall River down the water. And I was like, oh, my God, these kids are so badass. Like, I couldn't have never done this. Yeah. Um, so your, your high school, um, high school experience, getting ready for college. 
were you just participating in the sport or were you training outside of practice as well to get you to the next level where you potentially get a college scholarship? Yeah. So I think kind of once I realized that there was a chance for me to actually do it, um, I, I started to put more time into the sport on my own outside of practice. And the other part about that is that most high school rowing teams actually have their rowers compete both in the fall and in the spring because there are fall seasons. Uh, they're just different. In the fall, you race what's called a head race, which is mostly just a time trial style race where you're set down a race course with at about you know 30-second intervals or so. And those races are all around 5,000 meters. And then the spring is a starting line type, six boats across, 2,000-meter sprint race. So it's very different the fall and the spring season, but I was only competing in the spring because I wanted to continue to play soccer in the fall. So once I realized, you know, I I was kind of at a little bit of a disadvantage only having one season under my belt, I started to spend my summers rowing. So I uh, was lucky enough to be invited to some junior team development camps over the summer where that was super eye-opening to me. Once I was exposed to these other young women from all around the country that were better than me and were really kind of serious about their future in the sport of rowing, I realized, oh, okay, this is, this is what's actually out there. This is what I have to kind of raise my level to be. And it's not going to happen if I don't put in some extra work. So I used to do things like show up to practice a little early and get a three mile run in before we started practice. Or when we didn't have organized Saturday practices, having my own or Saturday practice on the rowing machine. Um, and kind of from a young age, my parents tell these crazy stories about me. I I don't know where it came from, but there was some kind of self-motivation where I just really loved being the best at things. And so if I could figure out a way to make that happen for me, no matter what, you know, avenue it was, whether that was school or sports, I I kind of wanted to put that time in because I loved the process of, of seeing improvement there. Which makes it curious why starting a sport in high school would bring you down that road. I would think if you were so dedicated to being the best all the time, that starting a sport at age 15 would be detrimental to that, that kind of like self-belief because you you obviously on some level would be kind of like behind the eight ball to people who'd already been doing this for a while. Like were your physical capacities that you'd improved in other sports kind of, did did that lead you to the point where you were able to start not necessarily at the novice level? So interesting because in the U S rowing really does start at high school age. Um, Uh yeah. And so there's a little, it's a little different out in other countries, but not that different. Really nobody starts rowing until middle school age at the earliest. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with just the sizes of boats that are available and, uh, rowing shells are super expensive and, are made primarily for adults. So when you're a, a, a youth athlete, right, even when you're a freshman in high school, there's pretty much only one small size that you can row as a team. Uh, and you have to grow into being able to fit in these boats in order to really be able to optimally you know, perform and not hurt yourself. So across the board in, in the U.S., it's pretty rare to start rowing before high school. And then when I started to make it up the, up the chain, you know, of different stages of my rowing career, I started to learn, actually, there are a ton of athletes that never rowed in high school and then got recruited to row in college or walked on to teams in college. And a third of my rowing team in London at the Olympics were walk-ons in college. So had never rowed in high school and had started their, took their first stroke at age 18 and then were able to make it to the Olympics by age, you know, somewhere between 21 and 26 for their first games. So really I think rowing is unique in the fact that it favors those who are athletes before just great rowers. If you have a foundation and a platform with which you can stay healthy through because you've done so many different kinds of sports that allow you to, to be resilient to the volume that rowing requires down the road, you end up having a great advantage. That's so interesting. Also, how does one get recruited for rowing? And I bring that up in the context of if it's a team sport like that, how would you be able to separate yourself out from your teammates while at the same time having this like symbiotic relationship with them while in the shell? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's part of what the rowing machines used for, or rowers call it the erg. Uh, it, you know, that's a, an individual machine where you're going to sit down and you're pulling a score or you're doing training sessions on it. And so there are a couple of different standards that are used for college recruitment, but primarily the 2000 meter race uh, where you submit your scores to colleges and they essentially have a threshold with which you have to meet in order to even be considered to be recruited. So raw fitness is step number one. And then I think the other part really is looking at the results of your high school team as a whole. So you're looking for a team that maybe is doing well on a regional or a national level. And then now as, as things have become more progressively, you know, technologically savvy for high school and collegiate coaches, there's a whole video submission process that happens a lot of times where a coach will take video of a rower rowing within that broader team boat, but it's the coach's job really to be able to assess that rowing style and technical proficiency to to make an assessment as to whether they see potential to how that athlete can develop technically. And if they're being a positive contributor to their current boat. Makes sense. Like the ERG score it, it, like from a, like comparing it to a running perspective would be like, all right, cross country times all around the country could be so different because you wouldn't right. have any context for like how hard the course is and how technical it might be. Right. But if you can just like, this is my 1500 meter time, they'd be like, Oh, okay. Well then that makes sense. Um, right. And so even for athletes like a co- high school athletes that may not be rowing in team boats because there are a lot of different boat classes and you could be a single scholar. Um, you, you never really submit your on the water times because for that same reason, right? There's too many variables. Uh, the course could have flow. It could be, you know, a river course where there's actually current or tide that's affecting your time. There could be wind impacts. So like your time on the water really doesn't mean much. Your time on the machine is what you can use to standardize across a bunch of different, you know, athletes and categories. So how could somebody, or how could a coach, identify an athlete who isn't currently rowing and see like, all right, this person would be a really good rower. Like you mentioned, there's a number of people that you rode with at the highest level who didn't even row in high school. So they didn't even have an ERG score. Like yeah. how would you, how would you even identify some of those candidates? Yeah. So two things, mostly one is size because uh, height and, and mass are huge advantages in rowing because you can create a longer stroke and more power. And the second piece being really what your athletic and sports background is. So has this athlete also competed in some kind of aerobic uh, monostructural sport in the past that requires some kind of force or power output? And do they have the tolerance for a lot of boring, long (laughs) training where, you know, swimmers were such a perfect translation because they have spent so many hours looking at a a black line on the bottom of the pool, you know, they're going to be able to do a great job sitting in an erg room on a rowing machine because they've figured out how to mentally overcome some of the monotony that comes with the the meat of the training that you have to do. Uh, But I had a couple of teammates on the Olympic team who were over six feet and had just these long levers, really long legs, really long arms. And that body type is a rowing coach's dream. Interesting. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now in a race, what percentage would you put to anaerobic versus aerobic work in terms of, if you say like the ideal race is like 100%, what percent right. is anaerobic? What percent is aerobic in terms of like the ideal, um, not necessarily capacity, but what, like what, what drives the perfect race. Right. So there's been a lot of physiological testing that's been done on this and it's somewhere between 60 and 70% of the race is considered to be aerobic. And then the remainder is anaerobic. And I think what's so interesting about rowing a 2000 meter race is the way that that is structured is, is pretty different than what you see in a lot of other sports where, you know, the the rowing race is going to last somewhere between, you know, maybe five, five minutes and 30 seconds. If you're a male that's racing in a, a, a men's eight to close to, you know, eight minutes and change if you are you know, a smaller woman racing a woman's single, right? So there's some span in terms of the, the the length of a race, but what's unique, I don't I don't know of any other sports really that that have this same kind of breakdown over that time duration where you are actually anaerobic in the first couple of minutes of the race and then you shift to aerobic and then you notch back up to anaerobic at the end. So you're essentially sprinting 
the beginning and the end of the race and you're maintaining through the middle. And the reason why I think that this is so prevalent in terms of how a race is broken down structurally in the rowing world is because there's a massive psychological advantage of being up in a rowing race because you're going backwards, right? So, so the, your back is what's crossing the finish line or the, yeah, the, the finish line first. So you can see your competitors behind you when you're leading, whereas a running race, right? Your competitors are behind you. You can't see them. So there's less of an advantage, I think, visually of being able to connect. I'm leading, I'm in control. Now I can relax and I can waste less energy because I, I can essentially dictate how I respond to everyone that's behind me um, versus, you know, whether if you were to try to work your way back up through a race, it's a little, it's a little bit harder to do mentally, I think. So definitely a unique breakdown from a physiological perspective over that 2K distance. I mean, 30% anaerobic is a huge amount for, um, for a sport to be anaerobic, like mm-hmm. enormous amount. So, which is really interesting because I have to ask then what part of your training would be anaerobic? Would you, I know like that the 80, 20 model is very prevalent in a whole variety of sports. Is that the ideal uh, rowing perspective as well from a, you know, aerobic to anaerobic training over an extended period of time? Yeah. So this is where we're going to get into a really interesting conversation because I think this is where there's a little bit of a disconnect right now within the U S in terms of, rowing training plans. Um, I can't totally speak to what other countries are doing because there's a lot of secrecy, especially in the top, the top, uh, countries like Great Britain, for example, they don't really let all of their data out for the public world to see. Um, but what my training plan was like leading up to London was much closer to like 85 percent aerobic and maybe you know 15 percent anaerobic and that starts to shift a little bit as you're getting closer to racing season but really what it feels like is pretty much everything you're doing is long and slow and aerobic and i actually had a really hard time following a program like that it didn't fit my physiology i don't believe and, and it led to a lot of injury and a ton of junk strokes because i was so overtrained and fatigued that those aerobic sessions started to turn into just me having my form break down and, and then subsequently, you know, somehow compensating and ending up with all kinds of overuse injuries. And so when we shifted my training plan, my second Olympic uh, training cycle to a much heavier anaerobic focused and quality focused and overall just lower volume training plan, that's when I saw all of my scores improve and my, my rowing technique get so much better. And then also my health stay really great and, and avoiding injury. And now that it's a, it's a team sport, but obviously the best way to capitalize on the team is have every, each individual at their, at their peak of their powers. So how often would your training need to mimic the training of the other people in your, in your boat? Or is it simply as individualistic as it can be broad based, but obviously when you're in the water, you're, you're acting as one. Yeah. Well, so I think logistically from a team perspective, it can be really hard for coaches to feel like they can manage more than one training plan across a group of athletes. So I, I believe that's really ends up being one of the bigger reasons why there's not more personalization across the board. Um, but for example, uh, you know, when I was training for London, it was about 50% of the training sessions we were doing were actually on land, right? So either they were on the rowing machine or they were in some kind of a cross training capacity, whether that was in the weight room or running. And really there was no, uh, variation between, you know, athlete a and athlete Z's training plan. They were all the same. Uh, and it was more about who could adapt best to the training plan that, that the coach was prescribing. And that would lead to whoever, you know, was left standing at the end of a training cycle and who could meet the standards with which were being asked uh, for assessment for uh, ranking purposes. But that seems so inefficient. It, it seems like I, it I should mean, be the other way around. <laughs> and it's really inefficient, I think. And I think some of it comes down to, um, an, uh, an inability or a lack of willingness to 
to try to make that work and be more individualistic. I think some of it has to do with the lack of education, actually, in terms of how important it is to be really precise. And honestly, the only reason I know this stuff now is because I couldn't keep training that other way. I, my body was failing me. I was hurt constantly. And I, I, you know, I had actually a rib stress fracture leading up to the London games and I ended up racing totally in pain. Right. And so when I finished that, I looked at myself and I was like, there's no way that this is the best way to create great rowing results. There's just no way that this is it. So I went out and sought out the help of all of these other experts that looked at me. And essentially I learned through a lot of different, um, you know, interactions with different people that there was another way to do this. And that if we could find a way to, for me to implement that in my own training, it was going to be positive. And, you know, for, for example, my husband and I helped to, coach the Harvard women's rowing team right now. And that's really what we're there to help the the head coaches do is we act almost as consultants to help them understand like, okay, we're going to divide your team up into quarters. And these, this quarter of the team really needs more of this physiological work. This, this quarter of the team needs this different stuff. And we're going to help to give you the tools to, to allow your team to actually maximize their potential through slightly changed personalized training plans. Oh, if your Princeton Tiger teammates could see you now. So mm. I know, they're not the super enemy. pleased. <laughs> they're not super pleased with me, especially my college coach who I adore and still stay very close with. When, when I told her that I was helping the Harvard team, she's like, all right, well, just don't help them too much. But <laughs> uh, I think they understand that we're Boston based. And it's a it's a great opportunity for us. You could help it be you, Sarah. There's nothing stopping you from going to the other 25 schools in downtown Boston. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, now how did you change as an athlete? So let's just take it from your, say your freshman or sophomore year at Princeton, when you were really training at a high level with high level teammates all the time, um, till 2012, just how did you change anaerobically? Let's say your running times, what you were able to lift, what your erg scores were, what was that evolution like? Yeah. So, um, I would say really there was a learning moment for me in the middle of my college experience where, uh, first of all, I realized I had to dedicate a whole new level of commitment to the sport in order to continue to make physiological progress, which meant I had to find ways to put in double sessions more consistently. And I need to find ways to recover from that so that I can bring quality across the board. Um, and then I also really started to dabble with strength training, as a junior in college and realized through just that experimentation that my body adapted really well to strength training stimulus and that power translation helped me across the board. So it helped not only my 2K scores, really also helped all of my 6K scores and my uh, ability to just come back every day and be strong and healthy. Um, and so that was definitely a part of because I spent more time in the weight room as time went on. Um, but, but mostly we look at these, we look at a couple of tests and, and the national women's team looks at a couple of tests in particular to see if you're making progress. So the first one would be a 2000 meter score. The second one's a, a 6k score. And the third one um, that's currently being used, although I'm sure this will change down the road, but it's a 30 minute test at a prescribed stroke rate. So you're limited by the number of strokes you can take in, in any given minute. And therefore, it's a really hard combination of power application and uh, of endurance being able to last over the course of a 30 minute period. So that sounds all... like a, that sounds like a mental strength test more than anything Ugh. on some level. Uh, it's a combination of everything. It's one of those things where, yeah, if you're in the pain cave five minutes into that 30 minute t test, you're in big trouble and you got to find a way to grit it out mentally. Um, but it definitely was a great way to measure, you know, what is your power application like and your efficiency at creating power over a long period of time. Interesting. Interesting. Now, so th this is fascinating to me. Obviously, this is not a rowing podcast. Spoiler alert. Right. Sorry <laughs> but, that we're talking no, so much about rowing. No, this is great. This is exactly why I wanted to have you on, because as you mentioned before, the people who get into rowing are not rowers their whole life. You know what I mean? This isn't like someone who's like, you know, a champion pianist, right? Who's like, yeah. I've been playing the piano since I was three, right? This is the exact opposite. It's like, these are people who are excellent athletes. Right who can then adapt to this sport and then like you 
once their time in that sport has has passed, or at least at the highest level, they move on to new things, which is exactly what I want to talk to you about now uh, with one more question uh, regarding the rowing career. And that is, when you talk about what it's like to, to, to row, you know, that, that 2K, you know, to burn for, you know, for eight minutes, you, I think you called it like basically just like, you know, some of the effect of like, just like, you know, fighting through the burn on some level. What part of that for you in terms of what separates the top people in your sport in terms of being able to do that? Is it, you know, from the mental side, like how much of that is a mental challenge versus a physical challenge? Like, is, is there a big differentiator at the physical capacity level for a lot of the people who are in the Olympics or is it, or is the differentiator a mental capacity? Yeah, that's a really cool question. So it's three parts. I think it's, it's a physiological part. It's a technical proficiency piece. And then there's a big component that's mental. And I had a a physiologist once say to me, and we used to get tested every so often, have our VO2 max our lactate levels tested. And he said to me, and I, I I really appreciate that he did, you know, look, you may never be able to reach a hundred percent of what some of your teammates can reach physiologically, right? Let's say, let's say you can reach 60% and they can reach a hundred percent. The difference is they may not have the mental toughness to get to a hundred percent. They may only ever be able to get to their 55 or their 60%. So if you can consistently show up to your fullest potential and hit that 60% mark, you can beat them. Right. And so I think that's definitely a part of it, right? It's a matter of how quickly can you go to the well and how long can you stay there and how much can you withstand that really uncomfortable feeling over, uh, over the period of that seven minutes. Um, But the other part mentally is, can you assess when there's an opportunity to shut somebody down? Right. And that actually ended up being my most favorite part of racing and especially racing in smaller boats. So as I, as I started to uh, row, I learned to row in eights. And then on the national team, I ended up mostly training in a two person boat. Uh, and that's a very different experience because there's no coxswain. So there's no other person that's like steering the boat or telling you what to do, because that's the job of a coxswain is that they're essentially like a mini coach in the boat for you. They steer the boat, they make all these technical calls and they tell you what's going on in terms of your speed and your placement within a race. When you get into a two person boat, that doesn't exist anymore. So it becomes your job as the rower to do that for yourself. And that means when you're at a moment where your, your competition is next to you and maybe they're hurting, you have to be able to recognize this is a vulnerable moment for them. They are really uncomfortable and I'm either going to make them hurt so much more right now by pushing the pace, or I'm just going to totally crush them by uh, essentially taking a move and creating too much distance between myself and them that there's no way they feel like they can make that up from a mental perspective. So definitely a huge mental component and something that, you know, I, I think I had to lean on because I wasn't that big of a rower and I didn't have a massive physiological talent. I, I had to find a way to use these other advantages in the technique and the mental side to, to try to win important races. Now you sound like somebody who did not lose well when they were a kid. Like if you, <laughs> did, did you, if you lost in Candyland, were you throwing the table across the room? I don't think I had temper dandrums as much as I was just really <laughs> sulky, right? Like uh, it wasn't fun to lose. And, you know, I know people say that, you know, that kind of cliche question all the time. Do you love to win or hate to lose more? Um, I'm not really sure. I think I was kind of equal, but I definitely didn't like to lose, but I, it was more so I really loved to prove people wrong. <laughs> so when, when somebody maybe told me, or even my dad started to figure this out, right. You know, if I can, if I can give her a little bit of fuel and let her know that maybe this isn't going to happen for her, she's going to find a way to make it happen. (laughs) Right. I think that ended up being something that, that really motivated me for a lot of years. Interesting. So now that you are not rowing anymore, at least at that level. So now you're doing, you're very active in CrossFit. And as, as we mentioned earlier, you ran the New York city marathon. When you were preparing to run New York and going through your training, not just, your ramp up, say that, you know, the, the three or four months leading up to it, but just, you know, the, say the couple of years of training um, that just lays at the foundation of any athlete who's doing anything aerobic. How are you able now in your life as an amateur athlete to take that same competitive fire that's at the foundation of your professional success and put it into this world where you may not have those external bulletin board material items that you can just lean on to, uh, to get you ramped up. 
Yeah, it's definitely a, a big change in mindset. And I think actually it's, it's been important for me to find something that's a little healthier <laughs> in terms of what motivates me and gets me excited to stay fit and, and compete. Um, you know, I, I, I think when, when it's the only thing you're doing, right, when your full-time job is to train and to perform at these big races, obviously the result of them are so, is so giant and so important to everything that you're spending your time doing, right? And so if one thing goes wrong there, it kind of felt like everything was going wrong in the world. Um, and so now it's been more about me still enjoying fueling that competitiveness and loving, you know, getting a little bit nervous at the starting line and seeing what I can do uh, against myself and sometimes against others, but realizing that there's a lot more going on in my life than just whatever this athletic uh, goal is and really kind of having some perspective around that. So I, I think that's been part of it, but more than anything, I feel like what I've taken from my years of training and competing is the importance of consistency, right? And realizing that you really can't see results over time if you don't stay consistent across the board, right? And if you don't really, you know, you're not every session is going to be perfect. There's going to be lots of days where there's other demands that are pulling you in different directions. But, but if you can do something pretty regularly and then have really strong sessions, you know, here and there, uh, that's enough to, to continue to make progress, I think as a more amateur athlete, uh, that's definitely been one of the things I think that I've been able to to keep as part of my my training protocol and really see some success from. Now, did you race angry? <laughs> as a rower, yes, pretty consistently, yes. I did not race New York angry, but I used to I used to race rowing races quite often, pretty angry. <laughs> so, how do you approach either your your hard workout sessions or a race? to get the most out of yourself. Cause you can't race, you don't run a marathon angry. It's a lot of time to be angry. <laughs> and at some point you would just, it would just start to dissolve. So how do you get yourself in the proper mindset and what mindset are you searching for? Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny, like the idea of racing angry, right? I don't know if I've ever actually said that that's what I've did, but it certainly was an emotion that I would use to fuel some of my races and results. Um, but as I started to get older through, my rowing experience, I realized that holding on to emotions like that didn't make me really happy outside of the sport, right? They weren't super healthy ways to get results. And that uh, it was actually a lot better to find different kinds of purpose and different meaning through through why, why I was wanting to accomplish the things I was setting out to do. And so I think that's much more of what I've tried to carry on into my post- uh, professional training career is figuring out, you know, not only what gets me great results and what makes me excited to, to improve, you know, a marathon or half marathon or 10 K score, but what also is going to carry over to the rest of my life and allow me to function well, rather than trying to use it as a way to be aggressive and let out frustrations. Right. So I would say it's a lot, it's a lot more about measuring myself against myself and loving the idea of pursuing progress and pursuing, um, you know, advancement across the board, really whatever category that is. Uh, I think that that's a, a big motivator for me now and realizing like, okay, here's what I've did last week or last month. Let's see if I can stack up to last month's version of myself and let's see if we can get better than I was yesterday. And I actually think that's a really great motivator and totally healthy and a nice way to be internally motivated rather than maybe a little too much externally motivated. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. And obviously you had to have some of that when you were training as a rower because you can't be, you know, there's a difference between race day and just training day, right? Those are two very different days and there's no different now um, as well. So when you started your New York City Marathon training cycle, did you have a goal in mind? Uh, loosely, yeah. I mean, I worked with uh, a friend of mine as my running coach. Um, her name's Anna Willard. So she was an Olympic runner and she it does this now. She's a running coach. And so I turned to her and was like, Hey, can you help me? I don't know how to do this at all. Please write me a plan and tell me how to survive this thing. And so based just on some of the previous scores I had done on other little fun races and based on kind of what she thought she could expect from me athletically, we set a goal of trying to break 340 as like an ambitious goal. Uh, and then a backup goal of let, let's at least make sure that you break 350. And if everything totally falls apart, you got to try to break four hours. And so 
so we did all of my training within the first couple of months with that 340 marker in mind. And then I just started to smash those times and I got really ambitious and was like, no, 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 let's, let's in, increase what this goal is. Let's see if I can go faster than that. And so the last two months or so of my training ended up being mostly with the idea of trying to break 335. Um, and I, it looked like I was going to be able to destroy that, but it ended up that I went 343. And so really kind of interesting to see how my expectations based on how my training went, like definitely didn't meet the the result of the day. But I, I think still, if I, if we hadn't been pretty aggressive about those last couple of months of training, it, it would have been a lot harder. Now, do, were there certain workouts that you really had a, like, that you really dominated? Like you seem like somebody who probably like would just like dominate the track workouts and then yeah. maybe like had trouble with some of the other workouts. I say that because like I look at your background and like I know that's that's an issue with me. Like if you look at my track workouts, like they far exceed what I'm able to do from a race perspective at these longer distances. Yeah. So uh, when I went to Anna to ask for help with this training plan, um, I told her I don't want to run more than three times a week. And part of that was because I really wanted to keep balance to my fitness routine, but also I know how my body reacts to too much volume. And I was nervous about doing too much and getting injured throughout the process. So she made this work for me in that every week I had a hard track workout, a easy recovery run and a long training run that was slowly working me up to that marathon distance. And so those slow long ones were really mentally and physically hard for me. And I definitely had some great performances, like my 18 miler, my 20 miler leading up, I did very well at, but they did not come naturally. And they were pretty painful and not super fun. But my track workouts, I would live for like every week, I couldn't wait to go do them. I would like really nail those splits that I was given. They they felt right to my body. They just it was just like is a perfect match to my physiology. So running a marathon is certainly a big challenge in that I don't think it's what my body was made to do in any, by any means. Well, it certainly doesn't mimic what you've been training for right. for a long period of time. That's for sure. So what, so you said you want to keep a balanced approach to your fitness each week. So you'd run three times a week. What else were you doing? Lifting really heavy and, uh, having, you know, some combination of cross training in there as well. So those other three days a week that I was training. So I, I typically just did six sessions a week. Um, I was in the gym and, uh, that either that meant that, you know, I was under a heavy barbell or in some sequence of movements that usually lasted about an hour to an hour and a half, or there was some kind of a cross training component in there that maybe looked a little bit like CrossFit in some cases, but then also there were cases where it was just interval type work, whether that was on the bike or the rowing machine or, you know, circuit type looking, um, workouts that definitely, hit my aerobic side of things as well, but we're focused on doing that under load while moving well. Right. So kind of like, so hit training would be a big part of it. And then circuit training. All right. That makes sense. Now, when you say you were lifting heavy, were there certain um, exercises you spent a lot of time on? Yeah. Well, so maybe this is also a little bit of context too. I also raced the head of the Charles regatta two weeks before uh, New York city marathon. So I, I knew as well, right? Like I wanted to be able to perform in the boat too. And there are certain areas where you just have to stay strong if you want to be able to create power efficiently in the boat. And the biggest parts being like your core strength has to be super high. You have to maintain back strength from, you know, about mid to lower back. Um, and I wanted to make sure that my leg power was still there. So I did a lot of squatting. I did a lot of deadlifting. Um, I, I did a variation of all kinds of like weighted lunges and box jumps and, you know, it, it was a very varied, but I mean, I, I didn't lose a lot of strength until about the last five weeks or so of training. Like there was a, a session where I did something like six by four reps of back squatting and I hit 235 pounds in that. So like I was still strong uh, leading up to the marathon. It just, and those last few weeks of really long runs when my legs started to fatigue, I, I couldn't put up the same weight anymore. And so I just kind of backed, backed off of that. And you mentioned when you finished the marathon, the, for your, one of your first thoughts was, I want to do this again. And I just want to dig into that one second. When you, when you thought about that, did you, did you have a certain like, all right, I want to do this again and I want to do it better. I want to do this again and I have, I can achieve more. What was like the, like the, the part B of that, 
that inner monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody that's raced a marathon or done something really tough like this probably understands that, that mindset a little bit in that it's so gratifying to feel like you've achieved something that you've worked really hard for. Right. So I, I felt really accomplished from this and, you know, similarly, I felt really accomplished from a lot of my rowing results, but I think after this one, because I came in uh, slower than what my initial goal had been, I, I really crossed the line. It was like, oh man, I could totally do better on a course that's obviously like flatter. And I, I think I could get close to breaking 330, you know, if I went for another one like this. So uh, I think if I, if I do another one, uh, it'll probably be on something like a, you know, a Chicago where everybody says it'll be easier to, <laughs> to whip out a nice time. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a bunch of local ones as well, which are certainly less high profile. I think it's the Lowell Marathon or the Bay State Marathon, which is like from a New Englander perspective, I think is like one of the top ones for getting Boston qualifiers, not only because it's flat, but also it's like kind of late in the cycle. So you you have a little bit more time um, to get under your belt. It's kind of like one of those like last chance BQ type races um, ah, see i'm gonna have to pick your mind more to, to figure out some of the ins and outs like this i i didn't even know that that would have been a good option so yep good to know <laughs> yeah all right um and then one of the things that we talked about two weeks ago um we were, we were chatting on the phone see you're now head of business development at momentous which is a just i guess just real quick, what's like the 90-second elevator pitch about Momentus? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the director of marketing at Momentus. That's it, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. And we're a sports performance company that right now we are focusing on bringing the highest quality recovery products to the market. And really, I think what makes me so excited to work for a company like this is because it still feels so in the world that I lived in for so long, you know, being, being a sports product and especially being a high performance product. Uh, it felt like a really nice way to be able to translate a lot of the experiences that I had previously had and to be able to pass them on to other athletes that are now training and competing. Um, and so our, our biggest missions are, quality and transparency in this process because there is a lot of that going wrong in the supplement and sports nutrition world yeah exactly see i've always been i've always felt towards supplements the same way i feel about like my car going to like an auto body shop like i feel like i like when i take my car to an auto body shop i feel like they can tell me anything and i won't be able to refute it (laughs) <laughs> like unless they tell you like your wheel fell off like no i can see it, it's right there but they can basically tell me anything that went wrong with the engine and i don't have enough like information to be like no that's not true or whatever like i feel like i'm completely vulnerable yeah in that I situation get it. and like with supplements i've always felt the same way like i i haven't been averse to doing it when i was younger you know when i was playing basketball in college i would take creatine i would take protein powders in the off season to try to boost my strength but at the same time i was always like i have no idea what's in this bucket i have no idea if it's helping me and i'm just like going purely on faith and i have no idea if i should even have faith in this and then over time i was just like that's it screw it i'm just gonna i'm not gonna do this anymore because it was like caused me like mental anxiety to even like go through that process of choosing something without ever having the proper knowledge base to do so Totally. I completely think you just summarized the problem with the supplement industry in general. And I felt the exact same way. When I I was training for London, I didn't take anything because I had the same feeling. I was so terrified of an accidental contamination when we were being drug tested so frequently that I just said to myself, nope, I'm not going to risk it at all. I'm not taking anything. And it's not really until now that I realized how much I was leaving on the table because I was uneducated about the process. And when I look at myself and I'm like, okay, I was an elite Olympic athlete and I was uneducated to what what the supplement market and sports nutrition market looked like. And I didn't have access to resources that really could help me. Like we didn't have a sports dietitian uh, that was assigned to us at the time. And the other solution is basically you spend all your spare time doing research and reading about this, right? So that I think is a huge problem in this space in general. And that's a big part of what we're trying to, to fix at Momentus. And th- I've learned so much throughout this process. I could probably tuck your ear off on it just in terms of how the supplement industry is so different from the food industry. At least the FDA has to regulate food labels, right? But those are totally separate from supplement labels because supplement labels are not regulated by anybody. So when a protein powder, like what you were saying, says all this stuff on the back of it, 
Nobody's checking to make sure that that's correct. So it really doesn't mean anything. So you have to find products that are third-party certified by reputable sources that are actually checking to make sure that what people say is in their product is really in their product. And then on top of it, that there's no banned substances or harmful substances like heavy metals, right? Like that is rampant in the industry. So there's definitely a lot of stuff that I feel proud to be working to fix because it makes me feel like we can positively impact a lot of athletes' athletic journeys. Yeah. And I think there's like, a, there's a couple components here, right? There's like the side of it of like, all right, how much does this work? It's like what elements from a supplementation perspective are important and what potential compounds are less important. And then like, there's the safety side of like an elite athlete, like, all right, is this going to get me like kicked out of my sport if it's contaminated, right? Like that's not going to affect me necessarily, but like, you know, if I'm, you guys, you guys work with Tim Ritchie, right? We do. Yeah. Tim yeah. Ritchie so is one like, of our so athletes. Like, so like Tim Ritchie, like he cares about that. Like he doesn't want to get booted from a marathon or, you know, an Olympic, an Olympic event. So from a purely like, does this work perspective, I feel like there's just so much quackery in that as well. Like people are like, oh, this has this, this has that, right? It's almost like those shampoo commercials, which they're like every season. It's like a different, like a different fruit is in, in, like, is in shampoos. It's like this yeah. year, it's like, all right. There's part kiwi in this. And next year, it's like, no, now it's part apple. Then next year, like, this has peach extract. You're like, all right, like, what actually matters? Like, what right. are the vital components that I actually need versus, like, changing things a little bit here and there just from a marketability perspective? Totally. That's a really good point. Yeah. So I, I think it's cool that you brought up Tim, too, right? Because the certifications in terms of banned substances is the first thing that just gets you in the door with professional athletes because that at a bare minimum needs to be checked off. But what somebody like Tim was excited about was finding a product that he felt like was high enough quality that it could potentially help him from having like nagging injuries pop up, right? Because if you can improve your recovery process, then you can improve your, your uh, resilience to not breaking down from training and having injuries come up. Right. So what I would say, and what to answer your questions and in, in terms of like, what is actually necessary there, there really isn't anything crazy in our products. Right. And I say this sometimes it's, it's kind of scary to me, the fact that there's nothing massively proprietary in our formulas, like somebody else could copy this except for the fact that we are really committed to finding the highest quality source of that. And when you look at what's happening from a physiological perspective, after any training session that you do, your muscles are breaking down and you want that breakdown to happen because that's where adaptation comes from, right? But in order to be able to go back and create more muscle breakdown again sooner so you can continue to get fitter, you need to recover from whatever that previous stimulus was. And what's happening on a, on a muscular and a physiological level is your muscles breaking down and it needs protein in order to combat that breakdown and actually build your muscle back up. So protein, I think is the, the first no brainer, but that's like the first supplement you should be consuming in terms of looking for some kind of a recovery product. Whey protein across the board in the industry in general is understood and agreed upon as being the most effective source for recovery protein because it is so fast absorbing. So that's, that's really the biggest issue and why supplements are important is because if you could eat a perfectly balanced, high quality diet and get all this recovery that you would want from it, then I would vote for that too. But your body can't break down whole foods quickly enough to, to be able to have that impact within the crucial window for you to actually be able to recover optimally. But whey protein, you can. You can absorb it really fast and it can be put into your bloodstream and start that um, muscle build back up process much quicker. And so we use a grass-fed, cold-processed whey isolate from Germany. And specifically because in Germany, none of their animals or cows are exposed to any kind of hormones or antibiotics because it's illegal to do so there. And we can point directly to the farm with which those cows come from. And that's how specific we are, is that we know that's exactly where they came from. And we essentially did that exact same thing with every single ingredient that goes into our products. We were that specific and that uh, rigorous in terms of finding the best possible version that's out there. And we relied on experts within the nutrition field to tell us 
what was necessary to put in there for, for optimal recovery. And, and so it's not like I went in there and was like, Hey, I think this is what we need. Right. Like we actually listened to people that are way smarter than me in this area. There you go. See, that makes a lot of sense. And like, you also hear, again, this is like my naivete, but this is something that like I've gleaned with like minimal research over time, but probably 15 years of minimal research. So I have a lot of things that like, you know, they kind of like send up red flags and, or like, Oh, this makes sense. I've heard that before right without digging too deep it was like always making sure that you kind of like combined the protein with some sort of glucose because that way it's faster absorbing is that true or is that just something that like you hear over time it's just kind of a bunch of nonsense well in terms of a, an, an absorption uh speed the the issue is much more about like what can your body actually convert into uh, a higher amino acid profile and uh, like what what of, of this protein can you actually get into your bloodstream, right? So that's the problem with a lot of whey proteins and especially whey protein isolates because isolates are harder for your, your gut to break down. So if that isolate is not also paired with some kind of an enzyme blend that's going to prepare your gut to absorb it, then you're excreting all the protein anyway. And that I think is what ends up happening in most cases is that you, even if you're investing in a protein that you think is really high quality and it was grass fed, if your gut's not prepped to actually turn that protein into what you need then it's pointless and you're not getting what you should and so we've actually yeah. looked yeah we've i've had up. that I've, I've experienced like the ig distress and or felt like i was just peeing out whatever i was taking in right yeah and so that, that there's been a bunch of research that's been done on that and we have an enzyme blend in all of our our whey proteins that allows you to absorb a really high percentage of the protein that's in each serving so i think that's probably one of the most efficient ways and one of the most important things that you should be looking for when you're looking at a product like this is, okay, great. This is all super high quality, but how much is becoming biousable? Like how much am I actually being able to turn into helpful nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it's also one of those things where now that we've entered this era of um, like the shake culture, like people taking, like having like their morning shake, as their meal, because you have so many people who, you know, so many households have, you know, both parents work, everyone's busy, especially if you're trying to get a morning workout in. Like, shoot, man, my house is like a three ring circus on weekdays. Like, trying to get, trying to, so like having the shake is really nice, but it seems like it was like a huge opportunity for the supplement industry because all of a sudden it wasn't just like, okay, mix this with water or milk and like you get that grittiness, but it's like you're like throwing it in with all these foods. Like it's inherently easier to drink, even like some, even the worst of the products, it was going to be easier to just like to stomach just from a taste perspective. But it seems like it's like, it's like the perfect opportunity for a lot of this industry to like take advantage of that shake culture, which is so prevalent now. Yeah. I mean, especially in meal replacement, right? I, that to me is a red flag because I don't really believe in replacing meals in general, right? You You should be... And those were all so sugar-based. Yeah. All of those was like 56 grams of sugar or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there, there's that's a whole different part of the industry, I think, when you're looking at products that are made to substitute, right, rather than to help in, improve performance and recover, right? Or that's literally real... supplement. Like you're yeah. literally supplementing your diet, not replacing the diet. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how I think you really should be looking at supplements in general, right? 80% of your nutrition sh should be looked at at dialing in your food and like what you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of eating well, uh, whole foods, timing them properly, making sure that they're broken down across the three macronutrients and in a proper ratio for what your goals are. Like if you can't do that first, then there, you have no business looking at supplements because they're just trying to mask a bigger problem. So I, I've had a lot of dietitians tell me you should think about your nutrition as the 80-20 rule, right? Like 80% should be focusing on, on nailing your real food intake. And then the last 20% can be filling in the gaps through things like supplements. I'm so glad you said that because especially consider, considering where you the position you're coming from, like obviously like you're the director of marketing of, of a supplement brand, but to say that it's, it rings true because it's 100% the case. I, I've been talking a lot on this podcast and on others have been on the guest uh, on another podcast as well to talk about sleep. And it's like the same thing. Totally. It's like, we get, it's like you can't maximize your workouts if you're not sleeping. Yes. Over like 
so it's like, you know, so it's one of those things where like you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's like someone who wants to be a writer focusing on like what pencil they should use. It's oh my like, gosh. That's not the issue here. <laughs> so true. So true. And it's crazy too. My husband works for a company called Whoop. Um, and that's a sleep tracking performance tool. And so like, he's literally saying this stuff to me all the time about sleep and recovery and, and all the athletes and pro teams that he works with, how hard it is actually to get them to understand that the same concept, right? You can't make up for bad sleep by trying to fill in like with all this like snake oil type kinds of, uh, methodologies, like take care of the big stuff first. This, that's the same way you should be looking at your training, right? Take care of the big stuff first. And then once you've mastered that, you can start to look at the small nuances that will make half percentage point differences. And so, yeah, I mean, I totally believe in that. And my, my one of my biggest roles as the director of marketing at Momentus is working with our athletes. And we have a lot of really cool athletes on our rosters that are doing all kinds of different things. And I feel like personally, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is that it's my mission to take, you know, some of the experiences that I had and the things that I know that went well, and then the things that I wish that I could have known before and help to pass that on to another group of athletes. And so when I can actually give good educated information, that's going to help them and not try to, you know, like trick them. Why would you want to do that? Right. You, I want to actually see great results come from these athletes. Like that to me is so exciting and fulfilling and just awesome to be able to be a part of. I don't know. I'm not sold. I think you're trying to sabotage Harvard for, for, for your alma mater. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, no, I, I don't think that's the case, but I'm surprised that they didn't yeah, like vet that a little bit more before they hired us to be like, are you going to just tell us to do the wrong thing here? <laughs> that's great. All right. Yeah. So before we get going, how can people learn more about you specifically and Momentus? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm on social kind of everywhere. Um, my handle is at Sarah Hendershot. So I, I don't have an H after Sarah. But then my last name starts with an H. So that part can be tricky sometimes. Um, but I'm, I'm all over there uh, on Instagram mostly. Um, and then if anybody's interested in taking a look at Momentus, we're at Live Momentus on all of our social. And then our website is livemomentus.com. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Matt. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. This was such a great episode. I can't help myself talking to people who have reached the highest levels of athletic success, no matter what sport they're in. I know this is a running podcast, and Lord knows I love it, but there are times where I just love diving into these topics with athletes that come at it from a different angle. I really do, and I have no doubt that if you listen to this episode all the way through that you got something out of this, because Sarah, not only is she... Just so smart, so well-spoken, and can really talk about a lot of different things. But she's passionate about athletic success, which, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are too. That's for sure. So, also, a big shout-out to Run for PRs Coaching and Megaton Coffee. They sponsor this podcast, so give them a shot. If you love this show, I have no doubt you're going to love what they provide as well. So, last thing. We got the merch. The merch is here. We got coffee cups, and we have the Rambling Runner headbands. The new site, ramblingrunner.run. That's right, not .com. Ramblingrunner.run. You can get the, the gray winter headbands. You can also get the coffee cups. On one side, you got the Rambling Runner logo. On the other side, no prerequisite to success. That was a big line that came from my coach's corner with James McCurdy a few months ago. People absolutely loved that line. So I put it on a coffee cup. There is no prerequisite for success and we mean you, loyal listeners, that's for sure. Thank you so much for listening, and happy running.